you can open up to James chapter 3. so glad that uh, that we're able to gather. James chapter 3. Some of you are no doubt familiar with, uh, you keep track of Supreme Court rulings, or at least you hear about them when they are of significance. And a few weeks ago, uh, maybe, maybe longer than that now, um, time kind of all blurs together these days. Who knows when it's Monday or Saturday, it all goes together. So but there was a Supreme Court ruling maybe six weeks ago called the Bostock decision. And I think probably most of you are familiar with that. It was pretty significant, uh, particularly for Christians. But the basic gist of that Supreme Court decision was to determine whether or not the word sex in the 1964 Civil Rights Act includes a person's sexual orientation and gender identity. And so I'm not going to get in specifics of that case and all of that this morning. I'm not a legal scholar. I've, I've listened to some on it and have an opinion on it, but as I'm sure some of you do too. But I just want to point out that in that case, you have basically the top legal minds in the world trying to determine the exact meaning in a sentence written in 1964 of a single word. They're discussing, they're thinking about, they're arguing, and coming to a conclusion on the scope of meaning of a single word in a sentence written many, many years ago. And it matters, right? The definition of that word, sex, in the 1964 Civil Rights Act matters because it shapes and determines people's actions today. It could have significant impact on people. Now here's the point, here's the reason why I'm talking about that. It's not to talk about the Bostock decision, but it's to say that words matter in our lives. They're significant. And words matter in ways that we often take for granted. We don't think about how significant our words are when we read them, write them, or speak them. And words matter because speech, words, are the fundamental way that our God acts. Think about that for a second. Let me kind of go back over that. Words are the basic, the fundamental way that God acts in the world, in creation, in the universe. I mean, think about the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. God creates everything that exists not by rolling up his sleeves and getting his divine hammer out and putting some nails in the proper place. He creates everything that exists by opening his mouth, metaphorically, and speaking words. God's speech and his actions are often the same exact thing. He acts by speaking. He speaks and creates reality. His words are active. His words are how you and I come to know him. He presents himself to us through his speech, through his living words. 
And as you read the Old Testament, you see him doing all these different actions through his words. He creates a covenant. God literally creates a relationship with human beings through his words. He judges people by speaking. He creates, he saves, redeems all by his words. Now, what's amazing about that is you take that truth about God and his speech and how significant it is, and then you think human beings are made in the image of God, and at least a part of being made in the image of God is that glorious gift of speech, of words, of communication ability that you and I have. And we, we so often take this for granted. We don't even think about how significant it is that we can communicate, that we speak in our daily lives. And we don't often think about how our words are acting on people around us, right? We encourage, you're acting when you speak words of encouragement. You are literally building up, encouraging another person. We affirm people, we promise things to people, we teach people, words impart knowledge. On the other hand, our words slander, they tear people down, they belittle people, we mock, we gossip, we lie, all with our words. You are acting with your words over and over again throughout the course of your life. And this reality is exactly why the book of Proverbs describes the importance of your words this way. Death and life, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You can impart death, you can impart life just by opening your mouth. Now the average person speaks about 7,000 words a day. Some are more, some are less. But think about that. You open your mouth, you speak in, on average 7,000 words a day, and opening your mouth and speaking words is like squeezing the toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube. You will not be able to get the toothpaste back in the tube, and your words go out into the world, and they create new relationships and new realities with people, and they act on people. Every day when you open your mouth, you are shaping other people. You are bringing life and you are bringing death to others by the way that you use your words. Words are not just a combination of sounds that we make with our mouths, kind of like grunting for cavemen, right? That's not what they are. It's not just a combination of letters that we write out with our pens. Your words are mimicking God's words by acting on other people and changing your relationship with other people for good or for ill every single day. Now, God has given us in his grace this glorious and deadly gift of words. And that's why James, in his book on wisdom, wisdom for wholeness, talks about the importance of our words so much. You're in James chapter 3, but I want you to look back across the page at James chapter 1 and verse 26. We looked at this a few weeks ago. In the context of acting on what you hear, 
not just being a hearer, but being a doer, James says this in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is vain. It is worthless. You can imagine yourself to be spiritual. You can think you're a pretty good person. You have a relationship with God that you're doing quite well, that you read your Bible every day. But if you cannot control this massively important gift that has been given to you of your speech, then you are self-deceived. You're confused about the true nature of your spiritual life. I mean, in our passage today, look back across the page at James chapter 3. Look how James opens this passage as he's going to instruct us on our words, on the tongue. James chapter 3 and verse 1. He starts with an illustration and a warning here to teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He's given us an example of how significant our words are. I mean, it's easy to want to be a teacher. It's easy to want to try to influence other people and to, to have people listen to you when you talk and to try to instruct people. This was very common in James's day. All throughout the Roman Empire, teachers were revered, and particularly in the church. So a lot of people wanted to be a teacher. There was prestige in this position. But James warns teachers, and he says, listen, you need to be careful to want to be a teacher. Because they use their words so much, because teachers open their mouth and they communicate life or death to people, they will be held accountable for a stricter judgment. Why? Verse 2. And this is the summary of the entire passage in verse 2. For, you can see the explanation there. For, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. This is a summary. This is like the, the thesis statement of this entire passage. We all stumble in many ways. I mean, James has already talked about our stumbling back in James chapter 2 and verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. But none of us, of course, keep the whole law. We all stumble. And James says we stumble in a large variety of ways. We struggle in our lives. But he says, if you as a person are able to bridle or to control your speech, this is probably, according to James, the most difficult aspect of your Christian life. If you are able to control your speech and bridle your tongue, he points out that you are a perfect man. Now, if you've been with us in the book of James, you know James is not saying that you are free from sin and that you are completely perfect in the sense of like God. He uses that word perfect to mean mature, complete, and whole. He's describing a whole and complete and mature believer there. I mean, we've called our study in the book of James wisdom for wholeness. The goal of this book is to instruct us in God's wisdom so that we will grow to spiritual wholeness and maturity. James doesn't want us to be lacking in any way. And so he makes it clear here, if you're able to control your tongue, then you are a complete believer. You're mature in 
the faith. You're not perfect, but you're able to control the rest of your life if you can get this area right. It's like James saying, if you can run a marathon, then of course you can run a 5K. One is significantly more difficult and significantly longer. And if you can do that, well, of course you can do this. If you can control your tongue, of course, you can keep watch on the rest of your spiritual life and your actions. But let's be honest with each other this morning, right? Most of us don't think of our words this way. I mean, James is putting a heavy emphasis on our speech, and we just don't think of our words as this important. We don't think of controlling our words as the most difficult part of our spiritual lives. I certainly wouldn't have thought of it this way. Wow, this is the most challenging part of my spiritual life. And this is the most significant part of my spiritual life in many ways regarding spiritual maturity and wholeness. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. And not only do we not think of it as the most significant, most of us really aren't concerned with it at all. I mean, we, we say things to other people and we say, you know, that are belittling, putting down, we lie and we think, well, it was just words. It was just, a, it just said it, it just slipped out. Or we post something on social media and we think, ah, it was just, I just wrote it on the internet. I just wrote it on Facebook. It's just words. And so we actually have downplayed what James says is perhaps the most significant part and the most important challenge that we have in our spiritual lives. It's like we have a nuclear reactor in our backyard and we're treating it like a two-stroke weed eater engine. We've massively underestimated the importance of the tongue, this thing in our mouths. We've seriously miscalculated. And so because of that miscalculation, James is here to help us. And that's what he's going to do in the rest of this passage. So verse 2 gives us the summary, and verses 3 through 12 are going to give us three reasons that spiritual wholeness or spiritual maturity requires control of your words. So verses 3 to 12, three reasons that spiritual wholeness, spiritual completeness, maturity, which is the goal of this book of James, requires control of your words. The first one of those reasons is in verse 3 through the first part of verse 5, and it's that words are dominant. Words are dominant in our lives. They play a massively outsized role in our lives. Now, as we get into this, I want you to notice something or keep this in mind as we're going through this passage. These three reasons form a progression. So I think James is making an argument here and he's building us toward spiritual wholeness and he wants us to be spiritually whole. He doesn't want our lives to be double-minded. He doesn't want us to be fragmented where we're saying one thing and acting differently. He wants us to be complete and mature. And so he's building an argument and progressing an argument through this passage so that we won't be a double-minded man as we saw in chapter one and verse eight. We'll see again later in chapter four. But he begins that argument by basically just making the point that your words are influential in your life. They're dominant in your life. Even though the tongue is small, 
And you wouldn't think it has such influence that James says it actually does. So he's already introduced us to this idea, this illustration of a bridle in a horse's mouth. I mean, you saw this in chapter 1, verse 26. He talks about bridling your tongue. And then he said it again in chapter 3, verse 2. Look back there. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And now he's going to make that illustration of a horse and a bridle even clearer. Look at chapter 3 and verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. If you've ever ridden a horse, even if you've just paid the $10 to ride it around a circle or had your kids do that at a, at a fair, you know that a horse is a powerful, powerful animal. To watch a horse run across a field in full gallop with its muscles rippling in the wind and its mane flying back is an unbelievable experience. And I've never ridden a horse in full gallop, but I can imagine how exhilarating and terrifying it would be. A horse is a powerful animal. And yet, if you put a bit, a tiny little piece of metal in a horse's mouth, and you connect that bit to a bridle, if you have a skilled equestrian sitting on the back of that horse, that individual can guide that entire horse, every part of it, where the rider wants it to go. The small piece guides the whole thing. A simple flick of the wrist can direct that powerful, massive animal right or left, slow it down, speed it up. It's an amazing thing. Small, yet influential. It's the same thing with a ship. Look at verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. A couple of weeks ago, our family visited, for one day, Traverse City up in northern Michigan. And if you've been there, it's, it's a wonderful place. We really enjoyed it. And one of the things we did was go out to one of the parks right by the bay and just stood there and looked out at the bay. And while we were there, there was a, a sailboat. I, boat is probably not the right word. It was a ship and it had three masts, massive ship out in the bay. And those three masts had multiple sails on them. And this huge ship is just cutting through the water in the bay. And it's beautiful to watch, to watch this thing go along. And the reality of that ship is that the pilot of that boat can't control the wind. He has no idea which direction the wind is coming from. He cannot make the wind slow down or speed up one bit. But what that pilot can do is with the rudder in the water, he can control which direction the boat goes just by flicking his wrist, just by turning the rudder in the water. A very small rudder controls the entire ship. Now, what I want you to notice about both the horse and the, or, and the ship, neither of these are negative illustrations. James is not saying anything negative about the tongue. In fact, I think we would all say those are positive illustrations regarding the influence of the tongue. 
what he's doing here is just showing that small size can equal great influence. Look at verse 5, the beginning part of verse 5. That's what he, the point he's making. So, also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. A lot of times when we see the word boast, we think of that as something that's empty. A person is bragging about some ability or skill they don't have. That's not the case with the tongue. It really does have the ability to control great things. It's small, but incredibly influential. So having made this first point that the tongue is small, but it is dominant in our lives, now he's going to advance his argument. And he's going to say, since the tongue is so influential, man, you can really mess things up with it. The tongue can be destructive in our lives because of the massive influence it has. Your words matter because they're influential, and if you misuse those words, they can bring incredible destruction. They can bring untold good or amazing evil. And so often we, unfortunately, use our words for evil. This is our second reason that spiritual wholeness requires control of our words because words are destructive. Words are dominant and words are destructive. This is the rest of verse 5 through verse 8. So look at the second half of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So he's bringing together here the ideas of influence and destructiveness. I mean, the horse and the ship are influential, small yet influential, but neither of those are destructive. A forest fire is small. It starts small, but it is incredibly destructive, disproportionate to its beginnings and its size. So obviously here in Michigan, we are unfamiliar with raging forest fires. It's, it's not something that we experience a whole lot. Many of you would know Bethany and I lived in Southern California for four and a half years. And I don't think folks that are outside of Southern California really understand fire season. And it probably even sounds funny to say fire season. You know, it's almost like Christmas season. <laughs> but it really is a time of year there where there are fires and they happen all over the place. In California in 2018, there were 7,500 wildfires that year. You can see why they talk about fire season. 7,500 wildfires, and they burned a total of 1.6 million acres. Now, I, that doesn't mean anything to me. I just know that's a lot of acres. That's four times the size of Wayne County, right? So just imagine everything in Wayne County burning up and that happening four times in one year. But think about how those fires start. They don't start big. They don't start large. What normally happens is someone leaves a campfire smoldering, just a little bit of the embers still going, and they walk away from it. Someone tosses a cigarette out their window Maybe they're out camping and they flick a cigarette out into the underbrush. Maybe they don't quite extinguish the hot coals that they're using for grilling. And it begins. The point here is, and the point James is making, is that every time there's a forest fire, every time there is an out-of-control wildfire, it starts with a single spark. 
could barely even see that spark jump up into the air. And despite its small beginning, those fires prove massively destructive. It's unbelievable. Sometimes wildfires can move at over 20 miles per hour. If you're caught in a wildfire, you cannot outrun it. And they don't just veer around buildings and homes and businesses. They burn those to the ground as well. They're not discerning about what they're going to consume. Once they get going, the devastation is nearly impossible to control. And when you think about it in those terms, what a sobering illustration for our words. And it's crazy to think that a single word could be so massively destructive. Look at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course, the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Now there's a lot going on here, but let me try to summarize what James is saying here. First of all, he says that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. You can express the entire ungodly world of sin and unrighteousness with your words. You can participate in almost any sin by speaking. I mean, think about the, the different ways that we sin with our words, the potential that is there. You can lie, you can slander, you can gossip, you can curse, you can arrogantly boast, we can belittle, we can incite someone to violence, we can express perversity, we can mindlessly chatter foolishness, we can provoke mischief, and the list goes on and on. He says that the tongue stains our whole body. It's small, and yet it stains everything about who we are. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 15. Remember these words from Jesus? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. He also says in verse 6 that it sets on fire the entire course of life. The tongue has the ability to wreak havoc on your entire life, to make everything about the way you live difficult and disjointed. Its disruption and damage have no limits. The tongue, when it becomes destructive, is not careful. It's not accommodating. And it says here at the end of verse 6 that th this destructive power is set on fire by hell itself. Which makes perfect sense, right? I mean, if, if Satan knows that God has given us this glorious gift of speech, that we can give life and build up and affirm others with it, then of course this would be one of the main areas that he attacks and tries to misuse in the brokenness of this world. Of course Satan's going to try to pervert this gift to his own ends and own purposes. And it's amazing with all of this that we can't seem to get control over this, this little thing that sits in our mouth. Look at verse 7. 
for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. What's interesting here is the way James describes these different classifications of animals is going back to Genesis chapter 1. Does that kind of remind you of Genesis 1 when God gives human beings the creation mandate? And what were human beings supposed to do in Genesis 1? Take dominion over the creation. That's exactly how we're supposed to operate. And James says we have that ability and we operate that ability all the time. We are able to tame animals. We can catch whatever animal we want and put it in a zoo. And we're able to even tame the vast majority of them. Some of them we even have live in our houses. I mean, think about human beings. We know how to handle poisonous snakes without getting, getting bitten. We know what to do. We figured it out so that we can rule over those snakes. We've even taken their poison and learned how to use that to make antivenom. That's crazy. What capacity God has given us to rule over the created order. And that's what James is talking about here. But even with that capacity to have dominion and rule over the created order and all the myriad of ways that we can, we haven't figured out how to do that with our tongues yet. Look at verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. I love that picture. Restless evil full of deadly poison. The destructive power of the tongue overwhelms us. We can't get control of it. So I hope you can see the steps in James's argument here because he's about to reach the culmination. The tongue is dominant, and because it's so dominant and influential, it, is, it can be used for destruction, to destroy, to poison. And because it can be used to destroy and to poison, then ultimately what the tongue will do is it will fragment our souls and divide us into a double-minded man. It will fragment our spiritual lives. And that's the, the final point in his argument in verses 9 through 12. Words are divisive. So words are dominant, words are destruction, destructive, and words are divisive. Now, when I say words are divisive, I don't mean that words ill-spoken can divide people from one another. That's true, and that is one way that we unfortunately use our words. But that's not the point that James is making here, and that's not the point that I want to make based on what he's saying. What he's saying here is that when we misuse our words, it creates spiritual divisions in our hearts and our souls. We become the double-minded man. From James 1 and verse 8 and chapter 4 and verse 8. We're fragmented. And the whole point of the book of James is that we would be whole, right? That our hearts would be reflected in our actions, that we would hear and that we would act, that we would be spiritually mature and spiritually complete. And now he's saying, if you misuse your tongue, you're not going toward wholeness, you're actually becoming more and more broken and more and more fragmented in your life. It's the exact opposite of the goal that he has for us in this book. The tongue becomes an instrument that wrecks our spiritual integrity. Look at verse 9. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it 
we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Think about the highest and most noble use of your words and of your speech. What is the most beautiful thing that you can do with this little muscle that sits in your mouth? You, as a finite human being, a created temporary human being, you can bless and worship and honor the creator God of the universe. What an unbelievable privilege we have been given. We can ascribe worth to the creator God of the universe. We can say the right thing about him. We can glory in who he is. We can speak of his love and his justice and his grace and his righteousness and his holiness. We can do that. We've been given the honor of expressing our delight back to God with our words. And so what we do is we come here on Sunday and we sing and we praise God and we lift our hands and we worship him with our voices. We speak the truth to one another. We encourage one another, build one another up in the faith. And then we go home and we gossip about someone we saw at church. We speak ill of someone who was here worshiping God with us. We call another human being who is created in the image and likeness of God, who is made to reflect that God who we bless, we call another human being an idiot. We post lies online and trash other people. James brings out this important principle here in verse 9. Every human being is worthy of dignity and respect and honor simply because that human being is made in the image of God, because they are like God. They have been created to reflect God. And so if we're going to bless God with our words, how can we turn around and destroy someone who's been made in his image with those same words? Now notice here, James does not give an exception for people with whom we disagree or who think differently than we do. It's not written in here. If someone is made in the image of God, we have to be very careful in how we speak of that person. Many people, many of us, are fragmenting our souls by coming to church on Sunday and worshiping God and singing to him and then bashing his image bearers with our words throughout the week. There's dissonance in our souls because of that. And James makes his point in verse 10. Look there. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. This is not how God designed it to work. It is not acceptable for us to pursue this sort of double-mindedness and fragmentation. And he illustrates the unacceptability of this in verses 11 and 12. Three illustrations here, very simply and very beautifully, right? Verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? It's easy enough to understand, right? I mean, most of us probably don't have a lot of interaction with natural springs, but in Israel, towns were built around springs because it was how you got water. It was important. 
You needed drinking water, so you built a town close to a spring when there was fresh water. But there's no such thing as a spring that produces salt water on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and fresh water on Tuesday and Thursday. Springs don't operate that way. In the same way, verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? No doubt James is pulling from the teaching of Jesus regarding bearing fruit in the Sermon on the Mount. Fig trees don't produce olives. Grapevines don't produce figs. It's not in their nature to do this. The end of verse 12. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The believers in in Israel in particular, but probably some of these other folks reading this would have been familiar with salt lakes, something like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea doesn't produce potable water, usable water. It just doesn't work that way. It's not natural. Now, obviously here, human beings are not trees. We're not springs, right? So James is not saying if you misuse your tongue once, you prove that you're not a believer. That's not the argument he's making here. Human beings are clearly a bit more complicated than fruit trees or grapevines or springs. But the point James is making and the illustrations he's using are meant to clarify this for us. If we have a truly renewed heart and mind, we won't be consistently producing bad fruit. What will come naturally to us, what will flow from our new heart, as Jesus says, will be kindness and grace and love. We will use the power of our speech to produce good fruit in the lives of those we love. We will edify, we will encourage, we will build up, we'll bless God, we'll worship God, we'll honor other people, we'll speak the truth even when it's difficult, but we'll do it in a gracious and kind and dignifying way to others. Our spiritual wholeness, our spiritual integrity depends, James would say, on how we use our words. And I think actually James would say, how you use your words is a primary indicator on whether or not you're listening to God's wisdom and you're growing toward wholeness. Look down at chapter 3 and verse 18. This is a passage we'll get to next week that is really the center of the book. But look how he ends this text in verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I think this is the result of those who are growing in wisdom and who have spiritual integrity in the way that they use their words. They're growing in peace and they're creating peace. They're a person of peace in relationships that they have with others. Now, ultimately, why do we have peace with others? Because we have peace with God. Because we take that vertical justification and declaration of peace. There's no longer war with God. We have been declared righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. We are justified in him through the work that he's done on the cross. We have peace with God, and therefore we worship and praise and bless God, and then we turn around and we honor and bless and build up his image bearers with our words. We become people of peace with others because we've received peace from him.
This is a challenging passage, and it's an important passage for us. So go back to the work of Christ, the peace that has been brought to you through him. Soak in that and then distribute it freely to others through your words. Let's pray. Father, we're certainly challenged this morning by this text. What beautiful writing James gives us that is memorable and will stick with us. And Lord, we ask that you would use this passage, use the illustrations, use the challenge that is here to change our hearts. Motivate us to carefully examine our words, to think about how we're speaking and what we're doing with this glorious and dangerous gift of the tongue. Thank you that we can speak. Thank you that I can even pray to you right now. We can communicate with one another. What an amazing privilege that is. Help us to use it in a way that honors you because we've been changed by the work of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for what you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray.